Well, hi, I'm Kit Smith, and I am an early childhood educator. Okay, then I'll just ask from the beginning. So I, I work with you in uh, Jewish education. Correct. And you are beloved by the kids, beloved by the parents, beloved by all of us teachers. But So that's where you are now. I want to ask, how did you get started on this teaching journey? Were you somebody who, when you were a little girl, you always thought I wanted to be a teacher? How did this happen? Hey, that is a great question, Brendan. Haven't been asked that question in many years as um, I am going on my 40th year as an early childhood educator. I am uh, one of those people that always knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I probably knew at the age of around five, I loved my early childhood experience. I went to Lucky Lane Preschool I loved it so much that when I was a senior in high school, I took a course on early education where I got to go back to the school that I attended as a preschooler and pre-kindergartner, and I got to be a teacher assistant when I was still in high school. And the same director that was there when I attended was still the director. I was, I mean, isn't that crazy? Yes, and I was also one of those kids that loved babysitting. I probably started babysitting at about the age of nine when I think you got a quarter per hour or something like that. Um, now it's ridiculous how much these babysitters get. But anyway, sorry, I'm just getting over a cold, so I had to take a little drink of water. Anyway, I always knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so I chose the college that had the best early childhood program, which happened to be the University of Kansas. And the rest is history. Can I ask, so thinking back, so that is an amazing, starting at like through your memories, you're like, I remember when I was so young and I liked preschool. Right. And then I was interested in this. And then senior year, I got the chance to go back to that school. It's almost like a whole first circle experience just as a kid. A hundred percent. Do you remember what was it about your experience in preschool or your experience in school that made you think, I want to be one of these people who are teaching me? Wow. Hmm. You know, it's going to sound very cliche, <laughs> but I, I don't know if I can really remember specifics about that, except that I loved early. I loved it. I yeah. just remember having fun. But I also always loved children and felt that they reciprocated that love. And so it was definitely, um, uh, it was easy, effortless for me to engage um, children. And I'm going to say something also that you probably know because you've watched me with children. But my number one thing I love is empowering children and making them feel special. And I just think that um, I, I that has been, I, I'm, I don't know how many professions you can have that type of immediate feedback from another human being because of something that you do or say. And so 
that to me is kind of the magic of what I love about teaching children. Is that what's well, it's funny, I work with a lot of veterinarians, and I think a major appeal for people who are in animal science and places like that is might be that same thing you're talking about where animals wear their hearts on their sleeve. And so if they like what you're doing, you instantly know they like it. And if they, they don't like what you're doing, you instantly know they don't. So you're right. That's instant feedback. Instant feedback. And it's interesting that you bring up animals because I also train educators and so and parents. That has become kind of part of what I do. Okay. And what I say to like these young girls that come and help me in summer camp or what have you, as I say, listen, if you've ever ridden a horse, you know that a horse can feel if you're in control. <laughs> and children are the same. They know if you are feeling a sense of confidence and competence in your care of them. And if you can project a sense of competence to children, they will they will listen to you. Um, and so it's kind of, I think it's the same with animals. I think animals have this intuitive sense that you either like them and understand them or you don't, and they're not going to give you the time of day. I, you know, anyway... I just feel that 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 was interesting that you brought up animal science. Is there at what point does it feel like now that you so in early childhood education um, that could easily shift into junior high and high school? And now you're talking about, hey, I also help train. Um, you know, teenagers who come to me and young men and women who want to be teachers and right. parents who want advice about this stuff. So then there's adults. How does it, can you really feel the difference when you're teaching children? Does it just feel wildly different than when you're trying to teach adults? And is there a point at which it feels like they make that switch from instant feedback to sort of self-awareness and guardedness? And that, where does, where does it feel like there's a line there between kids and adults? Um, I expect a lot more out of adults if you want to know the truth. And I, <laughs> I, I'm a lot harder on adults because... Children are just learning. I have to tell you, Brendan, um, people will say, well, early childhood, does that mean you can teach kindergarten? I don't know what it is. I have never, I have taught infants. I have taught toddlers. So that was like in my first three years, I was in a program that went from infants all the way through um, five-year-olds. So, but, um, but since then, for the past 30 eight years, I have only taught three, four, and five-year-olds. And I tell people, I don't ever want to grow up. I don't ever want to go beyond five-year-olds because I have to tell you, um, I love the innocence of young children. I love that everything is a new adventure and it's exciting. And um, I what I love teaching is um, not necessarily the ABCs and the one, two, threes, but it's life skills. It's, um, you know, they are learning how to learn, not what yeah. to learn, but how to learn. Now, I think that um, when it, when it crosses over from children to adults, um, I, I, 
I empathize with adults. I think parenting is is not an easy thing to do. Um, but I think that I um, probably am more patient with children than I am with adults. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's how I feel. <laughs> no, it does. It feels like there's some point at which in, in your own mind, you're like, I understand what development looks like in a human being. And the, you are at a point where now you can be a little more responsible for what you say and exactly. do a little more responsible for how complicated life is. Right. I can I can forgive a child because they haven't had the life experience, but those that have had the life experience and still choose certain ways of behaving, I can't excuse that. You know, they also say from zero to five are the most important years of development. And after that, you're just adding to, you know, your fund of knowledge. And so to get a child from zero to five and to really watch them develop is, it's explosive. It's exciting. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. What is it like? So you really did they make you even in student teaching? Did surely the, at some point somebody must have made you teach or co-teach classes for elementary school, junior high or high school? Never. 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 Like no, 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 no. my here's what my degree was in, Brendan. OK, my degree from the University of Kansas was called HDFL was the acronym for Human Development and family life. Is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? So my degree was not in education. My degree was not in secondary of education, of course, or education uh, K through five. It was human development and family life. Now, I do believe that acronym is gone. And I do think it's more uh, a part of the school of education because it does go through kindergarten. So you're actually taught what to teach. I was never taught what to teach. I, I will tell you that I took a class on how to read a book, how to read books to children, okay. how to hold the book. You know, I I tell parents all the time because we have parents come in and read and they're like, I'm like, listen, this is not as easy as it looks. And they're always laughing. And I say, I had to take a class in college, how to read to children. Anyway, I mean, that's just a little side note. But no, I've never, when you say courses or teaching or any of the such, I, I have never gone beyond early childhood. It does remind me now, as I think back to the school I went to where I had my undergrad, Cal State Fullerton, there was a specific building. I never went in there because I didn't take any classes there, but I think it was along the lines. I feel like they had kindergarten or preschoolers who went in there, and I think people were really focused on super young kids. So it might have been what you're talking about, maybe that toddler up to kindergarten, whatever that super young is, and that's a kind of degree they were teaching there. It's huge. Yeah. Um, And interestingly, at KU... Their focus was behavior modification. So I did have a class where I got to work with rats and, you know, kind of you have a goal of what you want to teach them and how many times it takes for them to 
you know, kind of learn a new type of, you know, walking through a maze or whatever to get to the treats. And then they had you work with children while being observed behind a two-way mirror of how many times it would take a child to achieve something with different kinds of reinforcement. I don't know. It was a little too, um, you know, it, it that's not the way I like. I believe in teaching. It wasn't very intuitive. It was a little um, abstract for me. So, and, and it does sound very tied, especially if you were t- talking about seeing what can we extrapolate from behaviors that we see in animals. How do we teach behaviors to animals, and then and vice versa? And then how could we extrapolate that to these small humans who are around us? What, what do we learn from the rat? Well, we you can- do know about the marshmallow theory, cor- correct? Even if I do, tell me. Okay, so the marshmallow theory is one of these kind of theories where you put a marshmallow in front of a child, uh, say a two-year-old, maybe a three-year-old, and you say, I've got to leave the room for a minute. If you do not touch the marshmallow, uh, I will bring you back another marshmallow and then you'll get two. So what you're observing in children is um, impulsivity and executive function and a, a self-control, of course. And um, nine times out of 10, the kid would touch the marshmallow. But it takes a chi- a, very, a more mature child, a child who can um, who can withhold and who does have more of an executive function and less of impulsivity not to touch the marshmallow. <laughs> so... In kindergarten, kindergarten, are you mostly working with kids who will touch the marshmallow? You know, I I don't teach kindergarten. I teach preschool and pre-kindergarten. I will tell you some of the children that I taught in religious school still would touch the marshmallow. (laughs) And I think you can think in your mind of who that might be. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that self-control is really tough for children and it's not something taught in this day and age of, I want it, I get it. And a lot of children, um, and this is what I try to teach to the parents, parents are afraid to say no to their children. And parents are afraid that a disappointed child means an unhappy child. So my goal is to teach parents that disappointment is the very thing that um, gives a child a stronger sense of, you know, a, or a stronger um, ability to uh, endure uh, the hardships in life, I guess, if, for lack of any other way to describe it. And and yet parents are so afraid of, of children being disappointed, upset, or sad that they um, give them too much. And that's kind of what we're dealing with in today's society, uh, an overabundance of things rather than parents giving time. So that's something I can talk a lot to, especially post-COVID, even though we're not post-COVID, but you know what I mean. Let's say we'll call it post-pandemic. Yeah, post-lockdown. Post-lockdown. During lockdown, what I've decided, and I have parents who say do you see a difference in kids? And I'm going to honestly say, I think children are more, feel more entitled and um, 
and can't deal with disappointment even more because to keep children out of the way so parents can get the things done that they needed to get done, children were not told no. And they were given things and they were pacified and they were appeased as opposed to, you know, you're just going to have to be disappointed. You're just going to have to cry. But if a parent was on an important uh, Zoom meeting, they would want that child to be happy. They'd let them eat what they want to eat. They'd let them watch what they want to watch. And they'd let them play with their little, you know, devices. And so I have to unteach all of that. And that's not easy. So that that's so that gets so it's interesting these these kids you see how these kids might be wrestling with that but I, we all know that the highly functional very intelligent um, successful folks out there these adults are modeling that behavior we're all we are all well, I shouldn't say all many of us adults as well have our faces in these devices and we use these devices to manage oh. our emotions just like these kids do. When we're bored, we go to the device. When we're angry, we can go to the device. When we you know, want to do something, when we can go to the device. So I, I'm not surprised that that was the go-to. Right. But I wonder if the parents don't model that, if the parents don't feel some, hus- some fear or reticence about their own smartphone use, even if they told the, because I hear a lot of parents say to their kids, you know, don't use the device, don't use the device, but then they use the device all the time. All the time. What do you run into? Well, that's exactly right. And when I talk to parents, I say, it's not what we say, it's what we do. Yeah. And, you know, we know that. We know that. Um, it's so funny when I first started teaching back in 1982, there were no smartphones or maybe there right. were big clunky things. I don't remember, but um Children would actually have play phones in the classroom that looked like the rotary telephone, right? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it's so funny. And then we also would have like play cameras, right? Um, A Nikon camera or whatever in the classroom. Well, forget about that. Children now pick up um, a flat block or a, a piece of wood and that becomes a cell phone. And there are no, they don't understand how to use a rotary phone, um, they do, they take pictures. They don't know how to take pictures with cameras. They use the little play cell phones in the classroom. Right. And it's just so sad, you know, but I guess I have to keep up with the times. And, uh, we used to in little doctor kits because children imaginative play is a huge part of how they figure out their world, yeah. uh, dress up in imaginative play. And that's what the children in my classroom do. And, um, you know, in the doctor kits, they'll have like thermometers and children don't use thermometers anymore. They'll take these thermometers and they'll put them up to their head. <laughs> right. And I'm like, what are you doing? And then I'm like, oh gosh, of course that's what you're doing. That's right. You don't put a thermometer in your mouth anymore. So it's just, it's very interesting. So back to your, you know, what we model, what children yeah. see is how they play. They, they, you know, th- the role play is what, what's been modeled for them. Is there, if, if, if parents come to you, so either you're teaching classes or you're talking to, you know, potential teachers about what these kids that are going to come to their classroom look like, or you're, you're working with the kids, I can see what you're saying about the importance, the fear of, the fear of harming or making unpleasant in any way your child's life. And it's funny, I could absolutely, I felt that little sting of, oh, you do, I can feel it different generationally. I can feel generationally different than my parents. My parents 
gave me plenty of stuff. Let me do many things on my own. Let me manage my own stuff. But we're not overly concerned about my emotions all the time. And I still have that. I have talked with my about my emotions with my parents. And I can right. just tell generationally they're just not as concerned about my internal emotions for better or worse. And I think it works out fine for me. But I can tell I think I'm I exactly just said I'm overly concerned about whether life is unpleasant for my 13 year old. Right. And when I push hard, like there's something she wants to do and we don't do it. There's something that she has to do and she doesn't want to do it and she still has to do it. Just like my own emotions, they're sort of like in that Buddhist sense, it's these the cloud of disappointment comes and then it goes. And a lot of times I ask her after the fact, like, well, I'm sorry I had to drag you that in those four or five hours. And once the thing's passed, it's really not a big deal. And maybe in support of what you're saying that this disappointment is important, I think she feels good about the fact that she was able to manage that situation in some ways. It's like you're talking about that self-control. Ding, ding, ding. But if a child never has that opportunity to realize, I didn't want to do this, but I did it. And it wasn't so bad. You know, there are parents that protect children from um, being just from anything but something that is pleasing to them. Yeah. So, and they never have a chance to realize I can do something I'm not crazy about. And maybe I kind of liked it. Right. And so I love that. And, you know, we um, can't make things better for our children all the time. And the more we try, the more unpleasant they will be and the more unpleasant we will be. And so, um, it's okay to just say, look, I realize this isn't what you expected, but this is what it is, you know? Um, so I think that I love that you said <laughs> it's, it's in the heat of the moment, they might be upset, but once they're past that, it, it's a flash, you know? Uh, it's same thing when parents drop children off in the morning, the child might be crying. Right. And I have come to, uh, take a photo of the child within a minute engaged in play and I send it to the parents. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hopefully educating the parent so that the next time they have to leave, they can remember, ah, this is short-lived, you know? So. Okay. For, for selfish reasons, then yeah. I want to ask, because this is a, so a situation, you know, I, I encounter in Jewish religious education. It's difficult. Sunday school is rough on Christians and it's rough on, it can be rough on Christian kids and rough on Jewish kids. Anybody who has to spend, get up early on their weekend, right. or maybe Saturday, they had all their extracurriculars and Sunday, they, now they got to get up again. They, they got to get up early again to go to, the older kids, I think sometimes the little kids, they snap too. They get into the groove. It's exactly what you're saying. They're like, they they get lost in the play or they get lost in the experience of having the people there. So even though they're unhappy, it passes. Right. Later on with older kids, uh, they don't, sometimes they can spend the whole day unhappy, really ruminating. Right. Do you ever see that with the the younger kids? And Never. I don't know. What, 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 Never. Do you think, what do you think about that? Never. Never. <laughs> no. Which is why I love that age. Right. And children um, have, well, you know, they have short attention spans, but they also have short memories. And so they're not going to bring a dismal, you know, mood from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. In fact, what you realize with young children is they function best 
when they have uh, consistent routines and they know what is expected of them. And um, they do have completely different sleep patterns. They're more, you know, I, I explain to parents that we that routines are equal security in young children. So what we talk about a lot is ensuring that you have a consistent routine and that you're um, physical well-being, well, this is for every age and stage, but especially important for young children. They have to have a protein-rich breakfast in the morning. They have to have had a good night's sleep, which means, honestly, 10 to 12 hours of sleep, if possible. And, you know, trying to put a, a young child to bed at nine o'clock at night and wake them up at six in the morning, it, it just does not work. And um, they need 10 plus hours of sleep. So, um, and and thinking about your 13-year-old daughter, that's nearly impossible to do. Uh, absolutely. And so I'm also thinking about what you said about, you know, during the lockdown when parents are working from home or their schedules become strangely more complicated or convoluted right. and, and they need the kids to be quiet. Right. Um, I imagine schedules go completely cattywampus. And then when everything comes back where these parents that have to drop their kid off early somewhere else in the morning so they can get to work and right. they need to come pick them up early enough. I don't know. That bedtime sounds very difficult. No, and if so you does have the, two working and, parents, yeah. it, is, it is next to impossible, especially if they get picked up at six. When do you have a family dinner? Oh, right. speaking of family meals, that's another big thing I talk about with with uh, families. I don't care if it's a single family household or what, if you just sit down and eat with your child, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, Brendan, do you remember your family table growing up? Okay. Um, uh, we were not, I grew up in a family of introverts. Okay. And the, the, uh, so n Sometimes we get together for family dinner, but there was a mass need for decompression by all members of the family. Uh -huh. And so oftentimes there would be scattering to the four winds. But on the weekends, my parents were not very scheduled. They were homebodies. And so I got that time other times. But for the normal people who are busy on the weekends doing social stuff, yeah, there it would be difficult to have time for the kids. Right, right. And, and, and I'm telling you, that is creating a whole new... A way of being. Gone are the family dinners. Now that everybody has, um, what are they called? The, the, um, why am I, the counters? What is that called in your kitchen? You know, oh, just, the bar. Just like that. Yeah. That long, like bar kind of counter. Right. Okay. Yeah. So kids eat dinner, the, kids eat their meal, breakfast, their lunch, yes. and dinner. Right. And parents generally are standing or talking to each other, or on the phone while the children sit at that counter and eat. And they're not sitting at a family table where there's conversation. And it's so sad. It's just, and we actually sit and eat with the children at a table, family style. And the amount of children that can't sit at a table because they've never learned <laughs> to sit, they get up, they run around, they move. I mean, this is the age I teach, Brendan, and this is what I love. I love teaching them how to have a conversation at the table and how to talk in, in not a yelling voice. And, you know, 
It's those are all of the things that I'm teaching, but then they go home and they're sitting in a counter while mom and dad are off doing, you know, who knows what. So, so a lot of what my early education um, degree has turned into is trying to bring back some of those family values that I believe will support our children and give them a life that I think will help in the end make them happier. Not giving them things that will make them happier, but giving them skills that will make them happier. Are you, because, so over overall, uh, you sound sort of optimistic and hopeful about that values and life skill sharing and, and, and parenting idea sharing. But I could also see how it could be, as you talked about small things that have changed, like used to be everybody sitting at the table. Now, no one is. It used to be people knew how to use these tools, these these uh, these tools. And now everything's collected in this little brick thing that everybody has all the time. Things have moved on. Do you think these these values or ideas will come back the way they used to be? Or do you think they're somehow going to be transformed? I, I don't know. What are you seeing or what are you imagining? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that the values of hard work and stick to itness, I wish I could tell you that that's going to stay around. But I don't know. I don't, I, you know, the only thing I can say is maybe. A new generation will grow up and and be like, this is what made me happy as a child. These are the values that I'm going to bring to my own child. Um, I hope that that is what happens. And I am um, hopeful because I do see a lot of young families that um, are coming back around to life's simple pleasures. And I'm going to give you an example of life's okay. simple pleasures that I really try to instill in my families. The simple pleasure of being outdoors. I think that there is a whole generation that kind of lost being in nature and learning by doing. My generation, we came home from school and we were outside until it was dinner time. Yeah. We played outside. We made up games. There were no store-bought toys to entertain us um, as a young child. there We did not come home and sit in front of a television or sit in front of a device. We played outside. We rode our bike. Sadly, children can't just get on their bikes and ride anymore. I think we live in a, a world that is a little less safe and parents are a little more fearful. And unless you take your child to a park and let them go ride their bike, right? Um, you know, the parent is a lot more present than our parents were. And I'm kind of feeling like that's not always a good thing. Um, and parents tend to feel like they have to entertain children rather than giving children time to entertain themselves. And so that's something I try to educate parents to bring back. So when I tell you 
There is no place I would rather be than teaching young children. (laughs) It is because of these values that if I can instill them, not just in the children, but in the parents at this early age, I feel like I'm giving parents tools for success. Now, the the dual working families, that's more frustrating for me. When a parent honestly is giving me the message that I just don't have time. Right. I get very, that is very sad for me. And I'm going to tell you, I'm getting more of that lately than I ever have before. You know, I just don't have time to do that with my child or to, to be present in your classroom with my child. And that's kind of sad. So this is going to require some conjecture, but I figure if you want to, you can. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. When I talk to personal finance people about people's finances, um, oftentimes they come and say, well, I don't have any money. And then the only way to really know what's going on is you need to sit down with them and, well, let's look at what you're spending. So you need to, when people come and say, I don't have time, I wonder how often some of them, I it is probably 100% true in order to maintain their household and their responsibilities. They really don't have time for this extra thing you're talking about. But I wonder for a lot of people, if you sat down and you sort of let's sit down and survey what you spend time on. If you'd look around and be like, well, what if you got rid of that? You're making your kid go to that, or you decide to go to that. What if you cut that out? Oh, I guess maybe I could. I don't, I don't know. So I wonder if they are out of time or if they just, they just don't write at this moment. They don't value that enough to get rid of something else. Ding, ding, ding. That's what okay. it is. It's value. It's okay. what do you value? Yeah. And um, it, a parent, I'll, I'm going to give you an example. We okay. we visit our students in their home before school starts. It's so important with young children that you have the full sense of them not just in your classroom, but in their home. And things in the classroom are enhanced when you can connect school and and home. Yeah. And it's a it's a quick visit, but they're but all year long the children will say to me, remember when you came to my house. And you get a sense of where they play inside, where they play outside, what their books are like, what their sleeping situations are like. Do they sleep in their parents' bed? Do they have their own bed? Do they sleep in a crib, a bed, da 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 mm-hmm. I have, for the first year, I have parents who are saying, you know, I just don't have time to schedule that 30-minute visit. And that breaks my heart. And I think it's exactly the conjecture you just made between finances and real time, a family's time. Um, One parent said, my house looks like a tornado hit it. I don't want you to see my house. And I'm like, really? (laughs) How long does it take you to, you know, and I'm not asking for a clean house. I'm not judging you on your house. I want to visit your child and see their bedroom, or I want to visit your child at home. I, I'm just floored, Brendan, and it makes me realize, gosh, am I getting through to these parents? Am I making a difference? 
I know I'm making a difference with the children, right? but am I making a difference with the parents? And to me, that's, that's an important part of what I do. So anyway, interesting. I like how you said, let's try to figure out how we can find time. They don't want to. They don't want to. They can find a thousand other things that they would rather do than have me come visit their child at their home. So anyway. And are these people who've, in this case, have these people sort of committed to an academic program or committed to this and this is part of the program? They've committed to a private education for their children. And it's not a just take your kid to the bus stop and see him at the end of the day. (laughs) Right. You know, it is a place where you are asked to be involved and you're paying the money. You might as well. But you know what? Some people would rather just pay the money and say, you take care of my child until six from 730 in the morning until six o'clock at night. And that breaks my heart. Okay, so I want to ask, there's lots of situations where we are disappointed by the commitment. And so I'll just say this from the veterinarian world. Lots of people in the veterinary clinic, there's a major problem. It's talk about the distance between the client and the veterinarian across the exam room table. Right. And the veterinarian feels like, wow, you don't value this animal that you own. This is your pet. You don't value it as much as I do. And I don't even know this animal. Right. So that's the the negative. That will make you feel bad. Could you, can you think of an example? Is there... A, and you can talk about it in complete generality. So it's obviously it's totally anonymous. Sure. An example of a parent who, when it started, hesitant, no time, didn't want to be devoted, but either because the kid was being changed or you sort of sold them on this, that you did see a big change over a year, or a couple of years, that the, that the parents did kind of slowly steer to, in another direction. You know, I... Sometimes, yeah, I honestly... I used to see it a lot. Okay. I used to see it a lot. And uh, you're talking to now a 40-year veteran teacher, and I'm all of a sudden thinking, gosh, am I burned out? Because I'm a little less hopeful that there can be change. I used to see the change, and um, I see it less. I see more demand from parents um, and less support for teachers, by parents, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're you're feeling there's that the parents feel like they're they're if we're all putting if we're all putting time into this kid's education, I feel like as you said, it's kind of like you just want to drop the kid off at a certain time and pick them up at a certain time. You don't want to be involved in any of this process right. that happens. But boy, do they want to call you out if <laughs> heaven forbid the water bottle did not come home? I'm like really. You are calling me out on the water bottle that didn't come home because your child forgot to bring it home, but you're texting me on my time after school to say, where's my child's (laughs) water bottle? You know, that to me is a real indication of parents not wanting to take responsibility, children not learning responsibility, and teachers being a puppet for the parents. You know, it's it's very sad. You know, I can go through two whole weeks of really creating an amazing experience for children. Yeah. At, at summer camp. And and this is without calling out a specific parent, but Sure. The, and then I I put together I take time on a Friday to put together a little vision little video 
um, compilation of the experiences the children have. Do you think one parent takes time after they view the video to say, wow, what an amazing week my child experienced. That must have taken a lot of effort. I appreciate you. Do you think one parent out of the, you know, the 18 parents I taught their kids said that to me, not one parent and one parent had the nerve to say, where's my child's water? Where was my child's water bottle? And uh, I just, I just think I would never be that kind of parent ever. If I saw something and I liked it, I would say something to the, to the person who I knew took the time to put it together. What does that tell you about these parents, Brendan? Stop. You're going to bump me. So now I want to talk about, I, I want to end up with something positive. Okay. I want to ask. So you've been teaching for, you did, you said you started in 1982. I graduated from KU in 1982. I went to the University of Kansas Medical Center and opened up a daycare at the time that was uh, focused on caring for doctors and nurses and med students' children. And we called it J-Care because it was KU Med. And um, I was there for three years until the private school where I teach now, I don't know if I can say the name, um, until we opened up, uh, until they, the uh, girls' school and the boys' school merged and expanded their early childhood program. And so I've been there since 1985 to the present. Okay, so long. And so what, long. I wanna, what I want to ask is are you st- what do your next five what have you always thought about what you'd want to do when you're like well I guess I'm retired as a teacher now so I'm gonna go off and do this did you ever have clear of clear vision of and do you have a vision of what that's I be? still don't I still <laughs> don't but I do want to tell you I'm getting I've had a lot of different visions sure one was to um go into more of a counseling situation with families. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I'm really getting interested in, and this is going to sound so silly, but I really love children so much that I hate the knowledge that children grow up and are mean to one another um, and bully. Yeah. I have a fantasy that I would take everything I know and love about children and turn it into some way to support older children and do workshops and really focus on the bullies. I feel sorry for the bullies. I think the bullies are the most in pain of any of the children. Yeah. And I would love to sit in a room full of bullies. (laughs) Those that are labeled bullies, you know what I mean? Yes. And give them a lot of love and skills and build them up and figure out what we can do so that, um, you know, children are, are, you said that you wanted to end on a positive note and now I'm <laughs> something really not positive. Oh, no. Now you're like, I, children are taking Children, they grow lives. up and they're mean to each other. Children and are taking oh, no. their own lives because of things other children say to them. Yeah. And I can't believe it. In my classroom, the main thing I teach 
right away is this is a safe school and a safe school is a place where no one can hurt you with their words or their actions. And we talk about what that means. And for some reason that gets lost the older they get. And that breaks my heart. So when you ask my thoughts about when I retire and someday I will retire, um, I think about how can I take my passion for the well-being, the mental, emotional, and physical well-being of children and turn it into something um, that will make a difference. So I guess that is where I'm where I am right now, thinking about how I can do that. So my my education piece and my teaching young children and my teaching young supporting young families, I think in that way would come full circle. So we'll see. 